We have a great show for you today, but first I want to say thank you to Motorola Solutions, gold sponsor on the Inclusive Product Management Summit happening here in Seattle May 12th and May 13th. We are grateful that Motorola Solutions wants to build a more inclusive future, and I hope you too will join us in building a more inclusive future by coming to the Inclusive Product Management Summit May 12th and May 13th. Registration link is in the podcast description. You won't want to miss learning about the future of product management and how inclusion in product management can not only build a better world that we all want to see, but also drive success for your career and for your business. See you all May 12th, May 13th here in Seattle. Again, registration link is in the description. Join us. Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I am the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. And part of what we're doing to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community is bringing you some insights from some of the best product managers in the world. And today we are talking about developing a team culture. We've got Michael Broom here, and we should have another person joining us shortly. And we're going to talk about why is building a team culture important for product managers. And we're going to get specifics, some things that Michael and John are doing that have helped them cultivate that team culture and that is aligning stakeholders towards a common vision. So thanks for being here. And first thing, I'll start with Michael. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in product management? Yes. Hi, Jeff. And hi, everyone. My journey. When I got out of school, I you know, started in the gaming industry and product marketing and product management was my focus. And then over time, I developed an interest in building things and being responsible for more strategic initiatives where you know, I wanted to have revenue goals and I want to see people, this is kind of funny, but be happy with the stuff that I do, right? Utilize what I built. And uh, so over time, I transitioned from uh, marketing and project management and the product management. And when I came to Vituity, I actually came in as a project manager for the first, let's say, nine to 10 months. And then I transitioned into product because the CIO saw that my interest was more in building solutions and making sure I provided satisfaction for my customers and our customers in this case are our physicians and as well as some of our um, back-end operational teams and so that's how I transitioned to this role within Vituity and yeah I'm a I'm a big believer in building solutions to help people become more efficient and effective um, in their roles and so yeah so I'm I'm a builder um, at heart so that's how and why I got into product management that's why I love it today so so that's my short story about my journey. So, Thank you, Michael. And I think your story will resonate with some of the aspiring product managers who listen to this podcast. And then, John, you have been director at Uber, DoorDash, uh, now at Waymo. So tell us a little bit about your progression in product management and before we get started to talk about team culture specifically. Hi. Yeah. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I fell into product kind of by accident. I um, spent the first nine years of my career and high-frequency trading. I was a high-frequency trader and a manager of traders and had kind of left the finance industry and ended up meeting the head of product at Groupon. And he convinced me to interview for a product manager role. I had no idea what a product manager did. 
But Groupon was trying to transition from this daily deal model to building a marketplace of, you know, kind of deals for people when they're hungry or they want to spa or something else. And so what was compelling for me was to go from, you know, kind of optimizing supply and demand of stocks and bonds to optimizing supply and demand of local commerce opportunities and matching people with kind of local commerce opportunities. And so, and then from there, yeah, Uber was kind of matching, you know, riders with drivers and a lot of the early work on matching algorithms and pricing and getting multiple people in the same car with products like Uberpool, which one of the first things I worked on. And so, yeah, it just kind of serendipitously led to a career in product over the last 11 years, but particularly focused on local logistics and, and particularly in, in ride hailing. So that's kind of what I've been up to. All right. Thank you, John. Thank you, Michael, for being here. Now, we're going to leave the audience with very specific things that the two of you do for developing a team culture. And in about 20 minutes, we're going to welcome the audience to ask you follow-up questions or to share their experience of what they do to develop a team culture. Before we get to specifics, John, I want to turn to you since you've been in product management a little bit longer than many of our guests or some of our guests. And I just want to know, where does developing a team culture fit into what your role is as a product manager? Why is that an important topic for today? Yeah, great question. I think there's a lot of probably good answers out there. One that comes to mind is, you know, culture is a, an important part of any company and any organization. And, you know, it's always it's always hard to pin down. How do you shape culture? What is the culture? You know, I, I love that Ben Horowitz book, What You Do Is Who You Are, where he talks a lot about how, you know, the real culture is not the values on the wall, but how people show up on a day-to-day basis, right? How they actually deal with with challenges, with, con- you know, confronting adversity with with difficult choices and i think what's interesting about product is that you know product tends to be at the intersection of all the kind of functional organizations right so product is working with finance with hr with engineering with design with research operations etc and so product managers tend to be kind of very integral to the culture of the entire organization and how product managers show up can have a big impact on the overall culture and i think what i've seen is um you know, when you have, you know, product managers that are optimistic and fearless and, and biased for action and, you know, kind of come with a mindset of growth opportunity and seeing challenges as, as opportunities rather than things to kind of be a victim to, it can help shape the overall kind of organization's culture and, and how it responds to, to challenges and adversity. Thank you. And then, Michael, very early on in your product management career, you're realizing a PM's role in developing a team culture is important. What give you that insight or why maybe you could share a little bit about either when you've seen that you have a team culture versus when that team culture isn't quite there? To echo what uh, John said, um, product is at the cross section of what corporations do, right? And so I've learned that one of the things that is you know crucial to products success is mindset right when you're interacting whether it's at the c-suite or middle manager or individual contributor level your mindset sets the tone and people react to you and people listen to your behaviors right they don't always listen to what you say but they listen to how you act and so if you are consistent you are deliberate you are, you know, hold yourself accountable and you always are looking at your colleagues and your customers with the proper mindset, that sets a tone that resonates with your colleagues, right? With your, you know, your product and your outcome, right? Because your outcome isn't always going to be positive or I shouldn't say, you may not always hit your goals, but 
having that right mindset allows you to keep moving forward and keep iterating, right, to improve the chance of success. And so I recognized early on, and I even think before I even became, you know, or got into product management was, you know, your mindset is everything, right? You know, if you think the journey is difficult and challenging and you can't achieve it, then you won't. But if you look at it as, look, if I just keep taking one bite at a time at, you know, that opportunity, eventually I'm going to eat the whole thing up and it's going to be a wonderful journey, right? So it is about the mindset. It is about, you know, your perspective and your perspective resonates with others. So, so yeah, so I think the mindset is very, very crucial to overall success, team success, and then building those relationships, right? So So back to John, before we get into specific activities and frameworks that you've used to develop a team culture, is there anything else you want to say about motivating the importance of these frameworks or just how to spot when it's time to start thinking more carefully about developing a team culture? Well, I would say it's never too soon to think about it. I think it's one of those things that's easy to fall by the wayside because I've been, you know, particularly, you know, early Uber and DoorDash, very execution-focused cultures, right? Where it's like, you know, let's go fast, let's run through walls, let's ship experiments, let's ship the next thing, let's, you know, before we even clean up the campsite, we're on to the next, you know, adventure. And a lot of times then things that are important but not urgent, like culture building, can become an afterthought. And then suddenly you have a bunch of cultural debt. I mean, Uber's pretty famous for that, right? Like anyone who's paid attention saw, you know, the the kind of tragic year of 2017 with everything from Susan Fowler's blog to Travis's, you know, the video of Travis talking to a driver and his eventual ousting and so forth. And really, I think the tragedy of that was that was years of cultural debt where culture just wasn't important and wasn't prioritized. And so I think it's a good example of how things can really go off the rails if, if you're not proactive about it. All right, Michael, anything to add or do you want to drive straight to something you've done that we could share with the audience? How about if we talk about what I've done? And what's interesting is John and I have a different, you know, path, which I think is great and I think most people's path is they are different. Like for for myself, I learned team dynamics through sports, right? Collegiate sports and so I actually would like to chat through some of the things that I've done as a result of that. So, because I would like to hear what John has done, because uh, he has a ton of experience that I think a lot of us can lean on. All right. So tell us, sorry, well, let's start with you though, Michael, tell us a little bit about what you learned from sports. What are some of the things that you've taken with you from that? I played uh, college football down in San Diego State. And one of the things that I remember my coach always said was, not everyone's going to be you know, the top dog, not everyone's going to be the lead, say, receiver in in our case or in my case, but we all had a role to play. And that role contributed to the overall success. And the success wasn't about the individuals, but it was always about the team. And we worked that way, right? We were consistently, you know, reinforcing the we over me. And no matter what, if someone was having a bad day, our job was to help uplift them, encourage them, support them, because the overall goal was for all of us to be successful, because if all of us are successful, then we have a great chance of being successful. But that took a lot of work, and it was the preparation, right? So what I've done was I've leaned on that mindset is always be prepared and have a plan going into, you know, situations or projects or assignments. So what I've always done and what I've done with my team today is I have um, a process. So we're, you know, agile and we are solidifying our agile structure, but it's just a framework for getting work done, but I give people the flexibility to get their work done. So 
and then similar to you know how Ray Kroc put systems in place for the early and you know in the early days of McDonald's and all these other fast food restaurants have done today, is having systems in place with enough flexibility for people to be creative, right, to deliver their solutions or to deliver deliver on their outcomes. So that's one of the things that I've leaned on pretty significant is having systems and process and a plan in place before you start anything. So that's one of the things that I um, consistently have and I have today. So. All right. Thank you, Michael. John, anything to build off of what Michael said or any new ideas to add? Yeah, I think you're just building on, you know, putting the team and the product ahead of the individual. I've always found that super important. And, you know, some of the cultural values that have been helpful for that for me have been, first of all, this idea that, you know, there's what is the highest idea of the product or the service that you're trying to build? And that's something that transcends myself and my ego and my own kind of preferences and wants. And so there's this idea of like kind of tuning into, you know, what is the highest possible idea of the product or service that we want to create? And how do you get people into that mindset? You know, and actually, even in my early HFT trading days, we've used some of these same principles that I've found useful over the years. The four big ingredients for that that I really like are, first of all, open and honest communication, right? Which is the idea that if we're trying to get to the best idea for a particular product or service, you know, those ideas are inside people's heads and we have to be able to get them out into the open and have a, you know, kind of honest conversation about what we think is working or not working or could be better or improved. And that means people have to be, feel comfortable speaking their mind. And, you know, related to that is a second thing, which is the idea of vigorous debate, which is, you know, do we have a marketplace of ideas where you and I can challenge each other? We can refine our ideas. We can combine them into even better ideas, right, through healthy, respectful debate. The third thing is kind of this low ego idea, which, you know, I rarely see explicitly stated in company values, but I've always loved that because it's this idea that, you know, I don't actually need to be right. And it's really important for the sense of psychological safety that I can throw out ideas that might end up being really crazy or end up being wrong or dumb. And it's not going to, you know, if I feel really safe doing that and I don't feel like I'm going to be judged or disapproved of or have my kind of, you know, approval of the group threatened by, you know, throwing out crazy ideas. And it allows us to be a lot more creative. You know, if you've read the Pixar book, um, you know, Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, it talks about the Pixar brain trust. Very similar idea, right? It's a bunch of creatives in a room that can throw around really kind of off-the-wall ideas and see what sticks. And that's because there's a tremendous sense of psychological safety and a very low ego on, on behalf of the participants. Um, so that's the third thing. And the fourth thing would be this idea of idea meritocracy, which is once you have this marketplace of ideas that are freely exchanged and debated in a low ego manner without attachment to being right, then, you know, the best idea can actually win. Now, of course, you have to figure out what it means to be the best idea. But, you know, assuming you have a framework for that, then the best ideas actually get you further and further towards that original goal, which is the highest idea of what the product or service could be. And I've always found that just kind of a really useful set of ingredients for um, having a culture of kind of the pursuit of truth, as you, as you might call it. So here's a question for both of you or whoever wants to chime in first. Oftentimes what's good for the team may not be what's good for the individual. So I was reading a post on LinkedIn from someone who told a story of a product manager who was dialed in on execution because execution was what was needed. But then when it came to performance reviews, there was a knock when maybe they're too execution focused and can't be promoted based off of having that strategic vision. So have you found that there can be this tension between what's good for the team and what's good for the individual? And if so, how do you resolve that tension? 
Yeah, I'd say one thing for me is as a manager, I'm always cognizant that I'm wearing two hats, which is, you know, you're kind of beholden to capital and you're also beholden to labor, you know, to put in a almost Marxist sense of capital versus labor. But there is an attention there, right? Because part of my job as a leader, as a manager is to be a custodian of shareholder capital and get a good return on that capital. And that means thinking about people as resources. You know, we talk about them as numbers in a spreadsheet it can almost be dehumanizing. But the idea is that you know, we really care about getting that ROI on capital. And that means getting people in roles that get the most efficient outcome for the business. But as a people manager, you're actually responsible for humans as individuals, right? With hopes and dreams and desires and wishes and career paths and progression. You know, part of your job there is really to make sure that they're in the right role and that they're uh, set up for success. And so I think there is an inherent sometimes conflict in those. And part of it for me is just acknowledging that and being explicit with which hat I'm wearing. Do I have my org leader hat on right now or do I have my people leader hat on right now? And to your point about execution focus and whether that's the right kind of focus for someone, I think a lot of times people aren't in the right roles. I find that a lot of times incentives are misaligned where people feel like they have to be choosing a management path to get promoted or get paid more or they want to be in a particular role because it's the sexy role or the thing that they think is going to get rewarded. And a lot of times it's just really kind of diving in with folks and figuring out are they on the right path, right? Are they in a role that really plays to their individual strengths or not? Yeah, I, I would uh, agree with what John just said there. And I think that's part of the the drawbacks, but the pluses of being a people manager. You you have to understand your employees. You have to understand the corporate or strategic goals, right? And you have to balance, you know, the success of your individual team member versus, you know, the corporate success. And you have to have that that balance. And I think when I think about the example you provided, Jeff, I think of analysis paralysis. I think sometimes people are some of the, you know, really bright people in in, in the workforce today get caught up in doing things perfectly and trying to make sure things are exact and that every requirement is met. But we're starting to learn that over the last 20 years that you don't have to be perfect in your in your work execution, but you have to be good enough, right? And finding that balance is a challenge. And I think that's where managers come in, where they have to have a pulse on what that equilibrium is. And that's where you have to step in or, you know, be in touch with your team members and say, hey, you know, I think you're starting to go past that point of good enough, right? Because if our goals are, you know, our strategic goals are X, right now you're trending where X and Y don't meet. So you have to, you know, consistently coach, coach against that. But I think that's a good problem to have, right? Because if someone's willing to put in the work, you can always help guide them to make them more efficient. But I do think that's a hard conversation if they're in the wrong role. And that leads me to one of the things that I've, I've had to, I built, I think it was not just for me, but for my team members. And I call it them frameworks, but in context of this conversation, I think it's, um, I've given uh, my team a tool to to have difficult conversations, right? Because I think most people don't have conversations that are difficult at work because they're afraid to have them. And I think, you would have to ask my team members, but I think I've done a good job of giving them the tools to teach them how to have those hard conversations. Because I think hard conversations are a way to make things better. Right. And I think most of us has been in a, in a situation where they've seen or they've allowed people to stay in their roles too long because having those conversations are hard. Right. So one of the tools that I've built for my team is just a the art of having a difficult conversation and some guidelines for those discussions. And it's helped because it allows us to actually fix through or 
talk through and communicate through some difficult scenarios, you know, these are, or that's one of the tools that I'm glad we have because I've had some of those difficult conversations where um, we've transitioned away from people as a result, but, and it was a win-win as a result, right? Because I had a plan in place. So, John, anything to add regarding the notion of preparing your team to have difficult conversations or anything that you've done to make difficult conversations successful? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I agree with that point that, you know, avoiding difficult conversations is never a, a good path because it just lets things fester or get worse. And then you have an even more difficult conversation on the other side of that. I think part of what I've tried to do is help people see challenging or difficult conversations as, as not something to be afraid of or scared of, but rather opportunities for growth and for learning. And I think that's hard for all of us. I mean, you know, our part of what I think has happened with evolution is our brains have advanced faster than our environment in some ways. And so, you know, we still have this amygdala that fires whenever we think there's a saber-toothed tiger in the in the grass that's about to eat us. And, you know, that same kind of firing of cortisol and adrenaline can go off when our boss looks at us disapprovingly or someone says, hey, I need to talk to you about something. And part of it is just, you know, de-stressing ourselves and finding ways to stay mindful and present and realize that it's not actually a saber-toothed tiger out to get us and that rather it's something that can actually be learned from and that we can grow from. All right. So we're talking about developing a team culture. If anybody in the audience wants to share what they do, or if anybody has a question for our panelists, uh, raise your hand. We'll get you up on stage. Again, we'd love to have audience participation uh, one way or another. Looks like we have a couple of people here. And then I want to add one thing and see, Michael and John, if this uh, relates to your experience. We had the former coach of the UW Huskies, uh, the football coach who took us to the college football playoffs, and I believe he also took us to the Rose Bowl, he talked about actually taking time to very explicitly get the group together to come to some agreement on what they believe, what they want to achieve, and how they agree to behave. And I'm curious if in in your line of work, whether how that would be received in terms of taking a couple days to actually focus on that instead of building, and if you've ever done something similar to that. So like forming, storming, and norming, right? As you compile your team and you organically allow them to start to come together as a group, is that what you're... Yeah, that's a great comparison. Yeah. I'll have to think more carefully about how that maps to what he said, but it sounds fairly close. Yeah. Okay. I don't, I've never been in that scenario. Typically when I've been added to a team or started, in this case, building my team, we started building, you know, one person at a time. So the culture just started to evolve based off of my structure, my decisions. And then as I've stepped back, you know, the team has started to own that culture. Right. But I've never uh, been in that situation that you described. I'm, I'm sorry. I haven't. So, yeah, I think what comes up for me is you're kind of describing this notion of where are we going and how do we get there? And, you know, for me, where we're going has always been this idea of having a clear North Star. And that's, you know, could be a product North Star as well as a company North Star. You know, for example, as at Uber, it was the idea of transportation as a service, right? Getting rid of car ownership and building transportation as reliable as running water for anyone anywhere. And that's a very aspirational North Star that, you know, might take years or even decades to achieve. But it's a very clear aligning kind of like place everyone wants to row or go towards. And then... How do you get there is kind of what I talked about earlier, right? Which are those values and principles like open, honest communication, low ego, idea meritocracy, et cetera, which is the cultural norms for like, how do we get there in a way that 
feels congruent in integrity with our kind of ethics and principles and, and values. But but yeah, having that overarching North Star of what you're trying to achieve and making sure that's a crystal clear picture in everyone's mind has always been really important for me. All right. Thank you both. Well, Michael, were you trying to say something? Yeah, I just had a, I had a question for both you and John and even the audience. At the corporate level, it seems like consistently, in my experience, there's always, like John uh, referenced, a North Star. But at the department level, there's inconsistency, right? So my question to, to you guys is, have you seen that being pretty inconsistent as well, where the departments just lean on the strategic goals of the organization and the departments don't always have a strategic goal? So you almost got to form it, right? So... I was just wondering if others have seen that. And I I personally, I'm, I'm fortunate because we do have that trickle-down effect in terms of strategies, and they all roll up to one another. But this is the first place I've been at where this is the case. So it's just a question. John, do you have an answer? I think what you're pointing to is really important, which is you got to have separable missions because if the overall mission of back to yeah, Uber as an example is, you know, transportation is reliable as running water, you know, for anyone anywhere, like how does that break down into – you know, a driver team, a rider team, a marketplace, mapping, billing, finance, et cetera, et cetera. I wouldn't say that I, they did a perfect job of it, but I think in the ideal world, yeah, those teams have separable missions that are in service of that larger mission. You know, if it's transportation as a service, then it's like, you know, the rider team needs to build an app that makes it really easy to, you know, pick a place to go from and to and, and get there with a few taps and, you know, an efficient outcome. It need, you know, the driver team needs to be recruiting a set of drivers and providing us an app that allows drivers to efficiently and easily find riders and, you know, meet them at the place that they were trying to get picked up at and so forth. And so, and then that maps down to, you know, a pickup team that's like, how do we make sure riders and drivers connect on the right street corner so that it's the most efficient possible pickup experience and so on and so forth. So yeah, ideally you have separable missions that, that all stack up to that larger one. And we have uh, a frequent listener and uh, oftentimes guest. Uh, JC, do you want to add anything to that question? Yeah, I mean, first of all, bravo, both you guys. Listening to you, you both said things that completely just, uh, I completely align with. I'll, I'll start off with, the, with Michael's question first. Yeah, Michael, I see this all the time. I see that even on an enterprise level or a leadership level, there's a lot of times not clarity in the vision or even the strategy. I mean, there's a lot of, we don't put enough time sometimes in making it super clear and simple. And that has a, you know, effects down the line. And I don't think that it, you know, I don't think that it's recognized enough. So I'll say that going further back to the other, the, the previous conversations on, on more of a one-on-one and you're actually managing your direct reports and everything and talking, using the word North star, maybe this still, this will confuse the things, but, but I do use that, tool for my direct reports because many times you find that you know people kind of go on autopilot they're doing good job good work but they don't have that that plan of what they're going where they're going to and without being intentional you know you can go on autopilot and, and basically let whatever's happening you know affect you versus try to think for yourself this is what i try to you know talk to my direct reports about like what are you what are you looking for what do you want from your job here this year, like what, do you, what can you learn, right? So you have an idea of where they're going to. Do they want to be a principal product manager? Do they want to be more on the people management side? Do they not want that at all? Do they want something else? Do they want to leave, you know, software, whatever it is? What can you do here? What can we do here for you? And to like pile on top of that, 
so I'm stacking a little bit here, is I try to create a real safe place for them. Like there's like one of the last questions I always ask them is that, you know, what can we do for you? What haven't we done for you here that we can do to help you on your path? Right. And I try to, I try to instill that, you know, everywhere I go because having that safety, um, that psychological safety really starts paying dividends down the line. Once people start believing that there is safety here and that leads into the idea of experimentation, which is critical, especially in product management to be able to take, you know, to experiment and not be fearful of it, right? So, and then last but not least, Michael, I would love to see what your um, typical conversation framework, if you'd ever want to share that, because I use this line all, all the time, difficult conversations, easy life, easy conversations, difficult life. <laughs> yes. And I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will absolutely share that with you. Absolutely. Sorry to interrupt, but before we get to the rest of the show, I just want to acknowledge how grateful I am for the partnership with T-Mobile as we work together to build a more inclusive future. T-Mobile is a platinum sponsor on the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, which is empowering professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first product management role. This is really important because all too often technology is created by the few and for the few, and we're grateful to work with T-Mobile in empowering a whole new generation to think of everyone uh, to universally improve lives with the technology that they prioritize. So I'm grateful for T-Mobile as a platinum sponsor on the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, and I'm grateful for the product managers who are on today's show, and I want to get back to them and, and let you all of you hear their perspective on how to succeed in product management. All right, we have uh, more people on stage, and sorry, Amrit, we'll get to you in a moment, but Chalumba, if I pronounce that correctly, was waiting first. And again, just a reminder to everybody, this is recorded and distributed as the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast, so I won't use your last name, if, but you can if you'd like, but thousands of people will hear your voice soon enough. So Chalumba, what was your comment or question for us? So similar to what John spoke about regarding difficult conversations, how do you encourage a culture of taking risks? So even with the drive for having a growth mindset, which encourages uh, learning from mistakes and being able to celebrate that, I often find that organizations were encouraged to take risks, but failure is called out or it's really skewed when looking at it from a performance evaluation point of view. This is one of the, I think, biggest challenges that we face in the workspace today. Failure is deemed as a negative thing. I have a brother. My brother is this um, overachiever, went to Cal, went to Carnegie Mellon, you know, chemical engineer, just really successful guy, right? And he's older than me. And I remember when I got out of college, out of um, undergrad, you know, he said, at one time, you're going to fail in life. And I paused him. I looked at him. I said, look, I will never fail. I may have some, you know, obstacles, but I never fail. I will never quit. I will always work forward and look forward, right? So in our company culture today, we are okay with failure. As long as we learn and we iterate and we improve and we do not call each other out on it, right? We're going to make mistakes and we got to own those mistakes, right? And we need to learn and get feedback. So what we've done is we've celebrated people who work hard and they try things and they fail and we celebrate them, right? And I think the reason why we're able to do that is we've built up a culture where we trust one another and that trust allows for a safe space for people to make mistakes and to get feedback without judgment. And I think that has helped a ton. 
And we've utilized OKRs to help with that, where we try to put in stretch goals. So making mistakes and failures are expected. So then there's no criticism because that's the expectation, right? And all of us are failing in some area, but we're learning and we're improving. So that's how we've dealt with that one at Vituity. So, but yeah, I think that's a really good question because I think most people, when they hear failure, they think, oh my God, I've, you know, I screwed up versus I failed. That means I have a chance of being better. That's how I look at it. So thank you, Michael. Uh, John, anything to add to that question? Yeah, I think that's a great point that, um, you know, those are two sides of the same coin, that if you want to have a culture of bold risk-taking, you need to celebrate failure as much as you celebrate success. Or And then maybe to your point, Michael, it's not even celebrating the failure, it's celebrating the learnings of the failure. And as long as you didn't make the same mistake twice, or you didn't fail in the same way twice, and that you learned from that, and you incorporated those learnings, and you tried again, you iterate on that, then that should be celebrated. But I think that's something that a lot of organizations miss, like I see it's a classic thing with I see with a lot of companies where they celebrate, oh, you know, so and so took a bold risk and succeeded, and you know, we're really gonna, you know, put them on a pedestal and celebrate them. But we don't give the same level of recognition to people that took a bold risk and you know didn't succeed, but still learned from it, and were able to take those learnings and take it into the next kind of iteration, the next project. And I think it's really important to celebrate that just as much because if you're not failing, you're not taking enough risk. That's really the pragmatic matter of it, I think. That was a great question and, and both great answers. I, I really love them. There's this book called Lead from the Core, uh, The Four Principles. Anyway, it's by Jay Steinfeld. And the reason I'm, re- I'm thinking about this book is because he talks about this quite a bit. And they had something, because Chalumba seemed to ha- ask for some tactical things. And I think that Michael and John both are thinking correctly. But you've, but there is definitely a challenge out there where you know other people in the organization don't have that. And they're not quite sure how to build that muscle up. Anyway, this book talks about one one thing that they did is they, they had these two huge test tubes, six feet tall, and they they were filled with balls. And one was experiments that you know that succeeded, and the other one was just all the experiments that failed. And the successful ones were you know just like ten percent full, right? The other other one was all the way full, like all the time, right? And the idea is changing like behaviors internally, little by little, doing micro experiments, because it is hard for people to make that leap. Because even, sorry, Jeff, but even in education, you know, right, where we, you know, it's almost like bad to make a mistake. That in itself is a problem. You've got to create that safety and you've got to build that muscle up for the people around you that they aren't used to that. All right. Thank you for the question. Thank you all three for chiming in. We have another question here. Amrit, join us, uh, unmute, and let us know how we could help you, uh, what question you have, or what comment you want to add. Thank you, Jeff. My question was more for, uh, I would say, individual contributor perspective. Actually, uh, actually, probably not. So this was about a conversation that was going on before about guiding as a, as a team leader, guiding your team members towards uh, finding their strengths. So my question is, if I am that team member who is still trying to find his strength, is there a framework I can use to be able to go about doing that? Yeah, I think that that was my question. All right. So frameworks that as you are building a team culture that helps people find, bring out, that helps you bring out the best in people, what can you share that somebody can bring out the best in themselves? Hopefully I captured that question correctly. Michael or John, do you have any follow-up questions or do you want to chime in? So along the lines of um, having a tool for having a difficult conversation, I have some for two areas that we try to focus on, especially for our younger 
um, less experienced product managers. So we try to focus on two areas. One is problem space and the other is critical thinking. So what we've done is by leaning heavily on this training and development that actually built confidence. And that confidence has helped us with our team members developing an understanding and a belief in themselves. And by building up the confidence and the belief in themselves, organically, these product managers have become more skilled, more confident, and they're willing to speak up. They're willing to dive deeper in the problems before we start talking about solutions. They become more creative because they have more confidence, right? So our tools have been focused on developing because we, I believe, the more skills you provide and develop within people, the more confidence and skills they start to you know, develop and they start looking for more opportunities to grow and that builds confidence and it just permeates within the group. So, so those are some of the things that we've, some tools we've used along with, you know, the, the one about uh, having difficult, the art of having difficult conversations. Those are some of the things that we've done to help build out our team. And I don't know, I'm losing my train of thought here, but. That's great. Thank you. Let's hear from John. Did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, yeah. I think the framework that I really like is this notion of looking at uh, trying to help people understand their zones of uh, genius, um, which is a framework that I got from a great book called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And it's the idea that, you know, you can either be in your zone of genius, your zone of excellence, your zone of competence, or your zone of incompetence. And like, you know, for me, for example, my zone of incompetence is gardening. It's not something that I ever got particularly good at. It's, uh, you know, I'm just not particularly adept at that you know, zone of competence for me might be doing the dishes, you know, it's something I can do, but it's not really bringing joy or fulfillment to my life. Zone of excellence is a tricky one where it's uh, oftentimes things that we um, got really good at at school or in our jobs and that we're paid really well to do. Maybe you're really great at giving presentations or um, communicating things to large groups, but it might or might not be your passion and your joy in life. And really your zone of genius is the, what are the things that you do that you would honestly do for free? that bring you joy and passion and fulfillment that you find yourself in flow states in, right? Where you lose track of time and you're just like, oh my God, it's been two hours and I just can't believe where the time went. And for me, it's helping folks identify what are those zones of genius? What are the things and what are the signatures of things you've done throughout your life, whether that's in school or in sports or in your uh, career that have brought you the most fulfillment and joy? And how do we create and construct roles for people that help them flourish in those, in those zones of genius as much as possible? Amrit, did that answer your question? Did that help? Yeah, it, it appears that there has to be a lot of uh, experimentation that has to go into this process as well. And thank you so much, uh, Michael and John, for the tools and the resource, John, for the book that you mentioned. I'll refer to it. Excellent. Thanks for joining us on stage. Thanks for the question. I have another question. This one's for Michael. You said that you played uh, collegiate sports for San Diego State. And I'm curious, what are some things that your coach did that made you, one, motivated to contribute to the team, two, fulfill your potential, and three, set aside your own ego and you know pushing for what you personally want and sacrifice for the better good? So he was a former Marine drill sergeant, right? Just the stereotypical type, right? Not a very tall guy, but very intense. He instilled in us, you know, preparation. 
and we worked our tails off the week before each game. We were the most fit, the most driven, the most efficient receiving core, you know, in our conference year in and year out. And what he taught me was no matter what, team is first, we before me, and iron sharpens iron. So our practices were at times really, really tough. But after practice, we would break bread together and we remained friends, you know, some 20 years, 25, wow, 25, 30 years later, we're still friends to this day because of it. So the teamwork aspect was taught, you know, where we don't look at our names first. We look at the school's names first and we make sure that we look out for others on that uh, team. And, uh, and it worked. And we also communicate. And that's the other thing that I, I don't think we've touched on a ton. But communication was the biggest thing. We talked a ton about how do we manipulate you know, our opponents. Right. And if I've transitioned that to. The more I communicate it on the field to communicating in the office, the more I communicate, the better relationships I have. And life is about relationships because there's no way you can achieve success alone. So those are some of the things that I learned. And I, you know, I'm still learning this you know, to this day. And I've, you know, I've taught my kids the same thing. Right. It's, it's truly about communication, first and foremost. Right. If you have that, you are years ahead of most all right. Thank you, Michael. John, anything, any other frameworks or tips that you recommend for developing a team culture? Uh, I think we've hit on a few of my favorites. I think one other one maybe to add would be this framework that I use a lot, which is this notion of looking at the context with, with which you're being with something. So if the content is, you know, the presentation or the product or the relationship with your boss or your coworker or whatever it is that you're talking about, having the conversation about context is kind of how we're being with that conversation. And a simple model that I like to use a lot is just checking with whether I'm in, um, we'll call it a binary state, just to simplify it a little bit, which would be either what I call below the line, which means at the effect of people, circumstances, and conditions, which is a state of kind of victim mentality, where I'm really seeing the world as, I'm seeing myself as a, as a victim to the world. I'm really at the effect of either people, circumstances, or conditions. And I see life as happening to me, and it's something that I'm not really empowered to control or change. And that's kind of associated with that fear-based reactivity that I mentioned earlier, where you know, you're in a state of fear, you're in a state of threat, you're often in a state of fight, flight, or freeze, and you're not really available for creative potential. The other state being what I'd call above the line or in a state of presence, of trust, of curiosity, of openness, which is really seeing yourself as an empowered creator of your own uh, experience. And while you can't control the weather or COVID or how your boss reacts, you can control your experience of that and how you react to that. And through, you know, various kind of presencing and mindfulness techniques, you know, we really can reshape our experience of the world and see ourselves as as radically empowered creators and authors of our experience. And my experience, that's been very useful in helping folks kind of get into a more creative state of co-creation and of creativity and of innovation and just a, a much more fun environment to work with people in as well. Thank you. And now we have another question or comment from the audience. So Rich, uh, thanks for joining us. And again, your voice will be recorded and shared on the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast available on every major podcasting platform. Speak your mind. What do you got for us? Oh, fantastic. Uh, that's not intimidating at all. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to ask, uh, by the way, I love the conversation we're having today. So I have two questions. So we're going through a particular transformation at our company where we're trying to, well, in some ways, install a team culture 
but and and by doing that by installing scrum but i think quite honestly we tend to have like a facade of of scrum or excuse me a, a facade of being agile and missing some of the basic values that come with that. So it it's becomes more of a facade. So my question is, Michael, you talked about having hard conversations. Implicit to that, I thought you were talking about having hard conversations with people who report to you. My question is, does that apply also to upper management and people you report to? That's part A of my, conver- my question. And then the second question I have is with regard to incentives that I've seen in my career, they tend to involve incentives for the most valuable employee as opposed to incentives for a team. Do you find that incentives that reward an individual are at odds with trying to get a team culture set up? But thank you. Regarding the uh, difficult conversation, the framework is actually for anyone, right? I've used it with my kids. I've used it with my wife. I've used it at work, whether it's for me and my manager to talk or me and someone on my team. So it's truly about the framework and getting your mindset right to have the conversation. So it's not about the topic. It's your mindset. And that's what the framework is around. So it doesn't matter who you're having that conversation with. The topic doesn't matter. It's just the mindset. And then regarding being agile-ish, I think I can speak to that because that's where we've come from. I think part of the challenge is having a process in place that leadership buys into. If you can get leadership to buy into becoming agile and they get training for everyone, and then you set up a process that people can follow and you just gradually become more and more aligned to the agile principles, I think that's how it works because it won't happen overnight. It is difficult because change is hard. But what we've done is we use ServiceNow as our intake. And from there, we've been able to create some back-end processes to get all of our work into our agile framework. And it's taken us about, we're going a month, let's say nine but we're only about three months into all of our teams being on Agile. So it took about six months to work out the kinks with the smaller group, and that also helped. So we saw the success, so I would recommend doing something like that. But I don't want to monopolize all the time. So, John, do you have an answer about the group goals versus individual goals? Um, yeah, real quick on the Agile thing, too. I'm a bit counter uh, culture unorthodox on that. And that um, I think a lot of people cargo cult Agile methodology and try to just make it work. And honestly, I've seen teams that are really effective and really productive that have zero Agile process. So <laughs> I'm always looking for the counter examples on that. Yeah, on the team versus individual goals, I think a lot of times it's just a case of misaligned incentives. Uh, you know, I used to, one of my favorite sayings is that 99% of organizational conflict is a result of misaligned incentives. And I think that's that's probably true, or it's at least certainly in the high 90s. And a lot of times that can be because different sub-teams or different teams have different incentives. You know, finance is trying to achieve something, products trying to achieve something else, so forth. And then kind of back to the individual things that we mentioned earlier, like is if I'm incentivized to succeed at all costs or to become a manager even though I don't want to, et cetera, et cetera, then that can cause me to pursue goals that are misaligned with what's best for the team. And so... I think there is a, a path for congruence. It's just, it just requires a lot of deliberate incentive mechanism design and goal design such that you know, individual goals, OKRs, whatever you want to call them, are you know, properly kind of nested and mapped to what the team is trying to accomplish. Great. Thank you. 
Thank you, Rich. Appreciate you joining us on stage, getting your question asked here for all of us to uh, push the knowledge forward. I'm sure that other people had the same question, so glad you raised that for us. Uh, We're about out of time, so I want to give everybody, our panelists, a chance for concluding thoughts. I will start with JC. I know you didn't uh, plan to give concluding thoughts, but you graciously joined the whole conversation, and I'd love to just hear if you had about one minute to what would you like to leave the audience with as it relates to developing a team culture? I think listen to Michael and John. They both outlined perfectly the, the things you have to you have to uh, consider. Making sure that you create a safe place, right, for your team. Making making sure, and I'm just borrowing off of what they said. So apologize, guys. I'm just you know because it's it's exactly right. Having those those you know uh, conversations, respectful candor, right, in those conversations. But being you know having the difficult conversations, and then the, the one that I leaned on really. A lot when I was discussing my piece was experimentation. You got to try because you learn so much more by trying than just by you know analyzing. To something else, I think it was John that maybe it was Michael that said it. But you know, there's there's almost too much of this thinking about perfection. There is no perfection. There's no product out there that ever you know put something out there that was perfect. So get that out of your mind. That's it. All right, thank you, JC. And sorry, I, I teased concluding thoughts. I have one question that came in anonymously. And so I want to see if we could get this answered and concluding thoughts here. How do you evaluate when it's worth raising a disagreement versus keeping quiet at the company, especially if you're in a junior level and decisions are made from higher levels who could influence your career prospects at the company? So it relates a little bit to team culture and just kind of how you navigate within it. What do you think, John? Any thoughts for how somebody could evaluate whether it's worth raising a disagreement or keeping quiet? Yeah, well, um, in my ideal principled world, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you have a culture of open and honest communication, vigorous debate, and idea meritocracy. And so the most junior person feel like they have just as much of a voice as a more senior person. And again, in an idea meritocracy, you know, the senior director's vote doesn't get more weight just because they're a senior director. If anything, you have to earn weight by having a, a history of good decision making. And it's interesting, you know, companies like Bridgewater have tried to develop whole methodologies and scorecards for for ranking people's votes. But yeah, in an ideal world, a junior person would feel comfortable. Now, I get in a practical world, many companies and organizations are not yet like that. And so if you're in a place where you feel like it's not a safe space and your career might be threatened by speaking your mind or speaking up, I guess maybe find ways to start small, right? Build a, a relationship with a mentor, you know, seek out um, open-minded leaders in the company, and start building relationships with them, you know, find safe spaces with which you can kind of voice your opinions and get feedback and iterate on them. And then that will help you build confidence in your ideas and become, you know, kind of uh, better at challenging people's ideas. But start where you can, that's what I would say. Yeah, and I I think that question highlights basically what what was being said here is the importance of senior leaders or anybody who's responsible for building a team culture to create that place where you separate ideas from people and you create and welcome challenges because without that, whoever this person was might be holding back some disagreement that could save you millions and millions of dollars from making big mistakes. So that question highlights the importance of that. And hopefully that question was answered. Michael, did you want to add to that or did you want to get to concluding thoughts? No, I think uh, John nailed it. It's building the rapport in order to have the opportunities to be able to speak against an opinion or a contrarying opinion, because that to me is the best way, right? Once you develop the relationship, 
that's when open and honest conversations can happen regardless of level of work so or level of title. Um, so I would say do that. And so, Michael, that gives me, before you get to concluding thoughts, and that gives me one more thing I want to say on this, is it's also important to separate ideas from people as you are raising your disagreement. So instead of saying your idea or attaching anything to somebody, but separate it and say, here's the flaws with this idea, and also to make sure that whatever disagreement there is is back backed by data because they have more experience than you. So their gut instinct is probably more trained than yours if you're a junior, but data can trump experience. Sorry, Michael, to cut you off. I just want to make sure before you went to concluding thoughts that I threw that in. No, no, I like that. I love that idea. Data is always, because um, you can't, the data doesn't lie. So that's why you should use that. Just build trust. Once you build trust, you have so many more opportunities to develop a, a quality team culture. So start there and open your lines of communication. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate you being here. John, any concluding thoughts for the audience? Yeah, I guess one thing maybe to leave you with is no matter where you are in the organization, how junior or senior you are, how long you've been there, culture is everyone's job and culture is a byproduct of how everyone shows up. And so, you know, even if it's starting small with how you show up in a one-on-one or how you show up in a team meeting or how you show up with, you know, various stakeholders or partners that you collaborate with, how you show up on a day-to-day basis and attitude and the and the cultural values that you bring can ultimately shape an entire organization. So just never forget that would be my parting advice. Thank you. And then I'll say, repeating something that I heard from Chris Peterson, hopefully I'm not messing this up because it was two years ago now, the coach of the Washington Huskies said, culture is not about how you behave when things are going well. It is a little bit, but it's it's most important and really hardest when things are going poorly. And so building that culture up front before things turn sideways and before people start finger pointing or complaining and taking the victim mindset instead of a growth mindset and attacking the, the problem, build that culture early, make sure you develop those cultural norms and you create that psychological safety and that you, again, focus on ideas and focus on shared goals and shared responsibility for behaving collectively how how you want to as a group. Because culture matters most when things fall apart and investing now uh, can make sure that you overcome that in the future. So thank you, John. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate you being here. Uh, JC, thanks for hopping up on stage and, and asking questions and raising comments. And thank you all for listening. We'll be here next week talking about becoming product-led again, talking about product-led organizations. And you could download this episode and every episode on every major platform. Just search for How to Succeed in Product Management on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, Audible, wherever you listen to your podcast, you could find How to Succeed in Product Management. And I hope you'll join us in building a more inclusive future. We could always use volunteers here at the Product Management Center at University of Washington. So reach out to me, Jeff Shulman, if you have any ways that you'd like to contribute or any questions. Thank you again, John. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, JC. And everybody have a great week.